You're listening to a message from A Faith Worth Fighting For. Lessons from the Letter of Jude. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at gccroguevalley.org. That's gccroguevalley.org. This morning we continue our study through the Letter of Jude that we've been kind of doing on and off. And we come to quite a large portion of this letter, verses 8 through 16. Verses 8 through 16. I'm going to pray, ask for the Spirit's help. We'll read the text and then we will study God's word. So once again, join with me in a word of prayer. Our eternal and gracious God, we thank you because of the reality that you have spoken, that you have spoken clearly. You are a God who had every right to hide himself and yet you have chosen to reveal yourself and to reveal yourself clearly in the pages of the scriptures. We would pray that your spirit would be at work helping us to understand your word especially a very dense a very complex portion of it we join our hearts as always with the prayer of the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law we ask these things in jesus name and for his sake amen well wherever you are once again i invite you to stand with me as i read the word of god i'm going to be reading from the letter of jude This is where we're studying, of course, Jude, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. 8 through 16, the letter of Jude, beginning in verse 8 through to verse 16. Once again, brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who look only after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild ways of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. Look, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Once again, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will abide forever. Please be seated wherever you are. In 1929, a 
Bulgarian immigrant and lay Bible teacher, claimed that he had received a new message from God for the church. His church leadership rejected his claims to divine authority, and so he broke away from them and started his own religious community, eventually settling in a town in Texas. This enigmatic figure claimed the end of the world would happen in 1959, and you know how it goes when people predict the end of the world. 1959 came, 1959 went, and of course, the world failed to end. Well, a group split off from this failed prophecy and wanting to divide themselves from the group they just left, took on a new name. History would know that group as the Branch Davidians. Well, fast forward to 1981, a high school dropout called Vernon Howell joins this group. And soon became its leader. Of course, I'm skipping a bunch of the story. Well, fast forward with me again to 1990. Claiming a divine revelation, Howell changed his name, and in changing his name would go down in history as probably one of the most infamous people in American history, to say the least. He took on the name David Koresh. Claiming ancestry from the biblical King David, as well as spiritual ancestry from the Cyrus who freed the Jews, is why he took on that name, David Koresh is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus. Well, David Koresh began to teach that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who was gifted by God to open the seven seals of revelation and to usher in the kingdom of God. Well, that little town I told you about, you all know the name of it. It's the town Waco. And of course, history tells us a bleak, terrible story unfolded. Koresh began to stockpile weapons and to teach that the end of the world was near and that really the focal points of this end of days would be the new Mount Carmel Center, their headquarters. And that until the time that the end came in, he was to be, in his own words, a messiah. Well, a sinful messiah who would bear the weaknesses of the flesh so that on the day of judgment, he could sympathize because after all, Jesus came and Jesus was sinless. So how can Jesus possibly sympathize? Well, never mind, the Bible says that he can. But how could he possibly sympathize? Because he's never sinned. So I need to sin so that I can understand. We have children listening in, and I'm kind of old school. I believe in kind of preserving the innocence of children as much as you can. So I'm not going to go into detail about some of the sordid things that Koresh did. But again, let's fast forward in the story. It's now 1993. For some of you listening to me, you know that story better than I do. You know, all those weapons he was stockpiling, the government doesn't take too kindly to you having that many weapons of that caliber. And so, as history tells us, there was a botched raid on Mount Carmel by the Bureau of Carmel, excuse me, by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I say it was a botched raid because they knew they were coming and a firefight ensued, leading to the death of both ATF agents and Branch Davidians. You generally don't want to face law enforcement at that point, and so a siege ensued. History tells us the siege was 51 days. The siege ended with a mysterious fire that to this day no one really knows the origin of, and believe you me, this week in kind of preparing this, 
Conspiracy theories abound. What we do know for a fact was that at the end of this, 76 Branch Davidians were dead, 25 of them children. Now, this isn't a time or place for discussing whether the accusations against Koresh were true, whether the siege was warranted, whether the fire that ended up taking all those lives was started by the FBI or by Koresh. I simply raised that tragic story to illustrate the dangers of someone claiming to speak for God when God hasn't spoken at all. This morning we return to the study of this little, what I've called a postcard letter, the letter of Jude. Just to bring you back up to speed, in case you've missed the previous messages in this series, you can go to our website and listen to those. You recall that Jude is dealing with some interlopers, some deceivers, the technical term is some apostates, people who had snuck in through the back door, he tells us in verse 4. They came in by stealth. And so Jude's letter is an apostolic call to arms in the face of this, quite frankly, satanic invasion. This morning, I've entitled the message, Apostasy A.D. I'll call it Apostasy A.D. because you may remember the last message, which we preached. It was actually our last Sunday together before the lockdown was in place. We called that Apostasy B.C. We took some time, we looked at the Old Testament and what it had to teach us. But Jude is going to switch in our study today from talking about what happened in biblical times to... His own day. And by the way, Jude's day in the biblical chronology is still our day. Our last study looked at what the Old Testament had to teach us about apostasy. And we saw that apostasy starts with unbelief. We saw that example of Israel and the wilderness generation. That apostasy is an act of arrogance. And that apostasy leads to loose living. You'll remember that Jude has a uh, very simple structure. I'm going to pull it up on the screen here. Jude has a three-part structure to it. You have an introduction in verses 1 through 4. You then have the body of the letter in verses 5 through 16. And then you have a concluding exhortation in verses 17 to 25 so think about it you have a introduction in verses 1 to 4 a body in verses 5 through 16 and then a conclusion in verses 17 to 25 we find ourselves still in the body of this we'll close it out today and in our next study in a few weeks we'll pick it up in verse 17 as Jude kind of closes us out You remember that last time I said that Jude was taking us into the school of apostasy. Well, he may have taken us to school, but he's not quite done. See, class is still in session here. And in this lesson, he's going to transition us from thinking about apostasy in the past to thinking about apostasy in the present. What are the marks of spiritual deceivers? If we could compose an e-fit of an apostate, what would it look like? 
If we had to develop a wanted poster, what would be the crimes and the marks of the apostate? Well, this morning I want us to pull up, take a seat, and sit at the feet of Brother Jude as we examine four more marks of spiritual deceivers. I just kind of make this memorable up on the screen now. Jude's going to mention four problems that apostates have. Four problems that apostates have. You see these four problems in a teacher claiming to speak for God. You see these four things? And you should run for the hills. Four problems that apostates have. Four problems that teachers have. Let's see if we can work this thing on here on out. My first one is very simple. The first problem that apostates have is that they have an authority problem. Apostates have an authority problem. That's verses 8 through 11. By that I mean they refuse to be under anyone and they want to be over everyone. Let me say that again. They refuse to to be under anyone and they want to be over everyone. Jude makes a swift connection between the apostates in the Old Testament and the apostates of today. These ones carry themselves, you see that there in our text in verse 8? In the same way. In particular, they have an issue with authority that isn't them. They try to establish their own authority. And the way that they do this is kind of classic. They seek to establish their own authority by claiming that God speaks to them. I preach and teach out of the Christian Standard Bible. And it rightly, in my opinion, captures the intent of the verse by noting that they operate. You see it there? Relying on their dreams. The New Living Translation goes a step further when it says that they claim authority from their dreams. By the way, this isn't the type of dream that folks have at night. Allegedly, I actually don't dream when I sleep, but that's a conversation for another time. Uh, I'm reliably told that people dream when they sleep. This isn't that kind of dream. The same word is used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, where... The apostle quotes the letter of Joel and says that your old men will dream dreams. These are dreams that claim divine origin and claim to be vehicles of divine revelation. These false teachers claimed divine authority on the basis of their dreams. But that's nothing new. Check this from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23, 25 through 32. Word of God says, I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. I had a dream. I had a dream. How long will this continue in the, mind of, in the minds of the prophets prophesying lies? Prophets of the deceit of their own minds? Through their dreams that they tell one another. They plan to cause my people to forget my name as their ancestors forgot my name through Baal worship. The prophet who has only a dream should recount the dream. But the one who has my word should speak my word truthfully. What is straw? What is straw compared to grain? Says the Lord. Is not my word like fire? Says the Lord, and like a hammer that pulverizes rock. Therefore, take note. 
I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words from each other. I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their own tongues to make a declaration. I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It was not I who sent or commanded them, and they are of no benefit at all to these people, says the Lord. Beloved, beware of teachers with newfangled doctrines who are, when they need to appeal to, create an appeal to authority, will sit there and tell you, well, God told me. The Lord said to me, I'm hearing the Lord say. Listen, if you want to establish divine authority, go to this book. If you want to determine if someone is actually telling you the truth, line it up by the book. Don't take my word for it. God himself says it. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, one of my favorite verses. Go to God's instruction and God's testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If you want to determine who is really speaking for God and who's not, don't believe them. Believe your Bible. If they match with this book, trust them. And if they don't, ask some questions. Well, coming back to our text, this false authority led to three very specific actions. You see it there in verse 8. It says, first, that they defiled their flesh. They defiled their flesh. The idea here is that they gave their flesh over to stuff that pollutes. In the parallel to this, the second chapter of Peter's second letter, 2 Peter 2.10, he refers to these same people. As those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh. Secondly, he says that they reject authority. He says that they reject authority. Of course, the question then becomes, well, what authority? Well, is it human authority that's in context here? Is it angelic authority? Is it divine authority? For what it's worth, I think the best fit with the context is that it's referring to divine authority. In fact, in verse 4, the noun form of the word translated authority here is used in reference to Jesus. Look at that. They reject lordship, you could say. The false teachers were setting aside the authority of Christ to establish their own authority. They defiled their flesh. They reject authority. Third, they slander glorious ones, Jude tells us. Well, here we need to park for a little bit. We need to kind of take our time for a second. Different translations kind of help us out with this some. So the ESV says that they blaspheme glorious ones. The NIV says they heap abuse on celestial beings. The New American Standard says they revile angelic majesties. It's interesting. The word for slander here is the word for blasphemy. And in fact, when it's directed at God, it's always translated as blasphemy. That's why the ESV just keeps the word as blaspheme. The general word carries the idea of speaking evil of, of speaking in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, and maligns. But th that begs the question, well, how is it that these false teachers, these apostates, slander angels? They slander glorious ones. Well, I think this is where we need to kind of 
zoom out for a second and look at the New Testament as a whole. Because I think if you look at the New Testament as a whole, I think it gives us some clues that can help us to interpret this rather interesting phrase here. So in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, in the middle of, my opinion, one of the greatest sermons of all time, Stephen, as he's drawing the sermon to a close, says, 753 of Acts, you received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, Why then was the law given? It was given for the sake of transgressions until the seed whom the promise was, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2 reiterates that point where speaking of the old covenant it says, For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and so on it goes. Kind of follow the logic with me here. God gave his law to his people under the old covenant. The law was given through the mediation of angels. Now, this is not the message for getting into a subject of the Christian's relationship to the law. Suffice it to say that the moral principles of the law still apply to the Christian in every age because they're a revelation of God's character. Full logic. By their lawless example, the apostates made a mockery of God's law. And they were, by doing so, were making a mockery not just of God's law, but the mediators through whom God gave the law. As one commentator, Simon Kistemacher, puts it, why are these godless men slandering angels? In their desire for complete freedom, the infidels slandered angels and refused to accept the authority of anyone connected with the law. In other words, their slandering of angels was a way of detaching the law from God and interpreting it simply as an evil. End quote. Interesting. Apostasy with unbelief, arrogance, and loose living. No wonder he says that it's just like in the same way in comparison with the apostates in the Old Testament. You see, apostasy, departing from the faith, it speaks to so much more than just theology. Ultimately, apostasy speaks to one's view of God himself and how God chooses to operate in the world. These ones were basically saying, God operated this way, but clearly he messed up. So I don't have to trust that. And of course, they were too clever to actually say that. But by their actions, they were slandering not just God. They were, we see that because they reject authority. But they're even slandering the ones through whom God gave the law. Well, Jude picks up on this third mark of the slandering of angels, and he gives an interesting little illustration in verse 9, and here we definitely need to park and make some sense of this. So look at verse 9 with me. Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, you can search your Old Testament, and I'm pretty certain none of you have read a story about an argument between... Michael and the devil. So that begs the question where on earth is Jude calling from? Is there something, did you make a mistake? Or 
worse. Is there something that taken out of the Bible that should be here? Some people go here. They say, see, this is why, you know, you folks who talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the completeness of Scripture don't know what you're talking about. Because there's stuff that should have been in the Bible that's missing. Is that what's going on here? Is there, is there stuff left out of the Bible that we could probably go find? Are we missing at least one more book in the Bible? In the notes that I recommended, I've borrowed from a British pastor called Dr. John Benton, pastor Chertsey Street Baptist Church in Guildford, um, back in the UK. And he has a really great commentary on Jude that I actually recommend just for your own personal study if you want to dig into the letter of Jude. It's called Slandering the Angels. It's a very easy to read commentary, not very large, and goes into, you know, a sufficient amount of detail that you can understand the letter that getting bogged down. I really recommend it. He was a great help this week. So in the notes that I recommended, I've actually included three points here to help you think about this, just so that you're not just trying to feverishly write all this down. Three points that you need to consider when we talk about quotations like this, because there are a few of them in the New Testament, where Paul will quote people outside of Scripture. How do we deal with extra-biblical quotations like this? Number one, we have to be comfortable with the fact that the New Testament authors quoted extra-biblical writers. A couple of examples. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Paul quotes the Greek poet Aratus, who says that, you know, we are all God's offspring. In Titus chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, one of my favorite humorous passages in the Bible, Titus writes, well, Paul writes to Titus and says, one of their own, referring about Cretans, a prophet of theirs, in fact, said that Cretans are liars, they're evil beasts, they're gluttons. Imagine putting that on the tourism advertisement. Come to Crete, we are gluttons, liars, evil beasts. But Paul had no problem in quoting that stuff. So we have to be comfortable with the fact that the New Testament authors quoted extra-biblical writers. Secondly, we have to pay attention to what is quoted. We have to pay attention to what is quoted. Jude is quoting here from a writing that was extant in the first century called The Assumption of Moses. Later on in our study, we're going to see that he quotes from the first book of Enoch. Again, two pieces of literature that were well known in first century Jewish circles. It would be like me coming into this sermon and I decided, I think I did it last week, quoting from Lord of the Rings. There are enough of us in this culture who have either read the books or watched the movies that if I quote that, you recognize that I'm not saying it's scripture, but I can use it for illustrational purposes. And I think that's what's going on here. That just like if you were born at the right time, if I mention Hogwarts, you all know what I'm talking about. I'm referring to the Harry Potter series. In the same way, I think Jude pulls from literature that was known in the day to make an illustrative point. By the way, it's worth noting for those who say that, well, see, this proves that these books are missing from the Bible. Actually, if you read both of these, we don't have full copies available. We have fragments available. I think in the case of Enoch, we do have a full version, barely available. If you look at what's out there of these books, the theology of both books stands in vast contrast to the New Testament. They're very works-based in their view of salvation, and they are highly obsessed with angels. 
It's interesting we had in our scripture reading, I didn't plan it that way, it just kind of worked. Colossians talks about not being taken up with the worship of angels. Angels were a big deal in ancient worship across the board. And so both these books are known for their obsession with angels. It's highly unlikely that Jude is giving an endorsement of these of scripture, just by the by. So you have to be comfortable with the fact that the New Testament authors quote extra-biblical authors. Pay attention to what's quoted. Thirdly, you need to keep in mind that the false teachers would have made use of these sources. I believe a strong case can be made that Jude is quoting these things because the false teachers definitely would have. I mean, if you pay attention to what we just read in verse 8, and you know just even a little bit about these books, you can see why they would. The assumption of Moses is an allegedly divine history of the Jews mediated by an angel to Joshua. The first book of Enoch is allegedly the record of Enoch, the patriarch of the Bible. It's allegedly a record of his travels in the spiritual realm and his conversations and interactions with all kinds of angelic beings. Honestly, I've read portions of the book of, well, the first book of Enoch this week in my preparation, and it sounds like the, whoever was writing this was on an LSD trip, personally. You can imagine ain't people who are obsessed with trying to establish divine authority. What easier way is there to div establish divine authority than to say, God spoke to me in a dream. Just like he did, you know, you're, you're for the assumption of Moses. Just like that. Just like what happened to Enoch. God actually does that. God's, Enoch spoke to angels and Joshua saw dreams. And guess what? God's using us that way too. Well, come back to the big picture of this for a second. What's the big point that Jude is making? If this is an illustration, all good illustrations make a point. What's the point of this illustration? Well, you, you saw it, didn't you? Yet when Michael, the archangel, verse 9, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel is actually mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Michael the archangel wouldn't even rebuke the devil. But these guys are brave enough, not even to rebuke the devil, but to slander angels. But by the very literature that they would quote, they stood condemned. Funny how that works. That's something that's worth considering, that these false teachers have an authority problem. They try to establish their own authority, yet they refuse to submit to proper authority. And when you see that authority problem in someone claiming to speak for God, that's a sign that you need to take off. Angels wouldn't do this, but verse 10 says, but these blaspheme anything they do not understand. Unlike the archangel Michael, who I think it's safe to assume had a knowledge of the spiritual world, I mean, he comes from there. Far from the attitude we see in this illustration, these spiritual hucksters were putting their mouth on things they just didn't understand. Far from being spiritually intelligent. You see it there in the text? Jude says, and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. All these false teachers understand is satisfying their lusts. 
Just like an animal has an instinct for food and you don't have to tell it once it sees food to eat. The pursuit of their lusts for these ones was just as instinctual. But it's interesting, the things that they did understand, these lusts that they were so quick to pursue, these very lusts would ultimately destroy them. Speaking of their own result, look at verse 11, look what he says. Jude says that they're going to get what is coming to them. See verse 11? He says, woe to them. Let's pause there for a second. This word that's translated woe is an interesting one. It's not even a full word. If I can have a, I'm a language nerd, so allow me to have a language nerd moment for the day. This is what's technically called a particle, a particle of interjection. Um, let me see if I can explain this in English, with the English language. Happened to me this week. I'm getting up from my desk. If you've seen my office, I have. Um, some speakers on my desk and there is like a little mini woofer type deal that sits underneath my desk. I kick that thing all the time when I'm getting up. So I'm getting up, I think it was Wednesday. I'm getting up to go get a drink and I'm getting up really quickly. I stub my toe and what's the first thing that comes out? Ow! Ow is actually not a word. It's in the English language, it's technically a particle. It's just, you say that to express pain. Or if you're having a conversation with someone and you get it, if you're like me, I, sometimes I'll do this, I'll be like, oh. Oh is technically not a word. Again, it's a particle of interjection. It's explaining that you understand something. Well, the word that's translated woe here is one of those type of words. It's a particle of interjection. One dictionary puts it like this. It's a particle of interjection expressing extreme displeasure and calling for retributive pain on someone or something. As Jude writes in the power of the spirit, he expresses a desire for justice in the face of these interlopers. Now, you remember that last time we studied Jude together, and if you weren't here, allow me to kind of bring you back to something I made a point of in that last message. I talked about this idea of a melodic line Actually, that's a good principle for when you study your Bible. Every book of the Bible has a melodic line, a theme that just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Sometimes there may be variations on that theme. Sometimes that theme may be given in inverse, but you'll see that theme over and over and over again. Here's what I think is the melodic line in the book of Jude. If you want a couple of sentence summary on the book of Jude, it would be this. Apostasy is real, but divine judgment is more real. False teachers may assault the church, but they do not get to win. Let me say that again. Apostasy is real, but divine judgment is more real. False preachers may assault the church, but they do not get to win. That melodic line, told you this week, take some time, read the letter of Jude from start to finish. And you'll see that theme come up over and over and over again. In case you're worried about that, Jude gives us three reasons why this judgment is warranted. Why is it that they should experience this retributive pain, this judgment? Well, look at what he says. He says, verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, 
have plunged into Balaam's error for profit and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Number one, it says they followed the way of Cain. All kinds of views when you read commentaries as to what Jude says here. I think the best way to understand this is to go back to the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? This is after his sacrifice was rejected and his brothers was accepted. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. You see, Jude was, not Jude, Cain, excuse me, was faced with a choice. Think about this. God comes to him. You see there in verse 6? Why are you despondent? Why are you furious? Why are you look despondent? Verse 7. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crashing at the door. God says, pick your poison. You can choose to do the right thing. And you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin's waiting for you. I beg, uh, let me ask a question. What choice did Cain make if you read the passage right on the heels of that verse 8 he says hey Abel let's go out into the field and the rest as they say is history your history by the way the false teachers faced the same choice and they chose to walk the same path of wickedness that Cain did when given the option between sin and righteousness they made a deliberate choice to pick sin. They've gone the way of Cain. Secondly, they've plunged into Balaam's error for profit. The CSB picks up on the nuance of the word here. It's a, a word that carries the idea of a liquid flowing out. They've plunged into this. Well, we don't have time, but Balaam's error is spelled out for you if you read Numbers 22, 23, and 24. For time's sake, let me summarize, and I encourage you to read it later on. Balaam's error... An error which so many still fall into in 2020 was the sin of, as I like to call it, pay for play. You pay me, I'll play the game for you. If you know the story, the king of Moab is terrified of Israel, even though God had told Israel, leave Moab alone. But he doesn't know that. And so he sees his millions of people and says, oh, good grief, I need to deal with this problem. And so he goes and finds a prophet called Balaam and says, listen, curse these people for me. There are too many of them. God tells Balaam, don't go. Balaam starts making all kinds of excuses. Why? Because the king of Moab offered him stuff. Do you see, do you, do you see the picture? Claiming to speak for God. Disobeys God. And follows after greed. That's the problem here. Somewhere in the mix. On some level. When you encounter a false teacher, greed is somewhere in that mix. It may not even be the primary thing, but greed is always somewhere in there. How do you know that? Well, the word of God tells me that. Romans 16, 17, and 18. It says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learn. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the, uh, the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Why do they do what they do? Such people don't serve Christ. They serve their own appetites. 2 Peter 2.3. 
Paolo passes to this in Jude. He says, they will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. My mother, when I was younger, used to say that, son, you've got eyes that are bigger than your belly. Well, that's not the problem with these false teachers. These false teachers have eyes that match their bellies. If they see it and they can have it, they're going to go for it. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam. Thirdly, it says that they perished in the rebellion of Korah. That's a reference to Numbers chapter 16. The rebellion of Korah was an all-out... So go read number 16. I, I'm, I have a very big fondness for number 16. It was actually the first passage that I taught as a Sunday school teacher with kids. So I have a real fondness for number 16. And in that story, you have these three men. Well, Korah is kind of the ringleader of the passage. But it's... Dathan, Korah, and Abiram. Three guys. And they basically say, does God only talk to Moses? Or he don't do does God talk to all of us or not? <laughs> and in response, Moses turns to God and says, look at this. Seriously. And God says, fine, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Text tells us that the ground literally opened and swallowed them up and closed up over them. God said, I'll save you the effort of having to bury them. I'll just bury them alive. It's interesting, he says, they have perished. But these false teachers are still alive. Do you notice that? You see that there? He says, they have perished in Korah's rebellion. Without getting into the grammar of this, it's what's called a prophetic heiress. Is the idea of this happened in the past, but guess what? It's using the language of saying that this happened in the past, but it's basically communicating that this is so sure, it's as good as done. This judgment is certain, just as it was for Korah, Dathan, and Abiram when they spoke against Moses. You see, that's the problem that false teachers have. False teachers have an authority problem. They set themselves up as the authority and they go against all authority. Or put another way, they refuse to be under anyone and yet they want to be over everyone. So apostates have an authority problem, but there's another problem they have. Another problem. So if that's problem number one, here's problem number two. Apostates have a service problem. Apostates have a service problem. By that I mean, should be up on the screen there. By that I mean, they want to be served rather than serve. They want to be served rather than serve. So again, look at verses 12 and 13. Jude fleshes out this service problem. He says, these people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts. Now, some of your translations will say spots at your love feasts. The, the word can be translated that way, but I don't think that makes the most sense given the context of what's being said here. Remember in verse 4 of Jude, these apostates, these false teachers are described as being sneaky, subversive, stealthy, surreptitious. Just like a reef is a rock formation that is beneath water that you don't see unless you run over it. I think the picture that Jude is trying to paint for us here is that these ones are a hidden danger in the flock. And they're brazen about it. You see what he says? These people are dangerous reef at reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. Love feasts in the uh, early church, by the way, were communal meals that were had 
often culminating in the Lord's table. In fact, that's where the Corinthians got into some trouble in 1 Corinthians 11, where they were basically eating and some didn't get to eat, and then they were abusing the Lord's table as a result. Jude paints the picture of these ones as being cold as ice. That they're eating at these communal meals in the early church and they're doing so without so much as a qualm of conscience. All the while they are like reefs underwater. Come across them and they are taking you down. But they, they're going to eat though. They're not looking to serve you. No, you're going to serve them. He continues to flesh out the service problem. You see the rest of the text there? He says, they are shepherds who only look after themselves. Shepherd? That doesn't make sense when you read it, right? It shouldn't. Shepherds are supposed to look after the sheep. But these cats right here, they're not feeding the sheep. They're feeding themselves. He goes on and he says that they are waterless clouds carried along by winds. The word picture here is really potent. Don't sleep on it. Coming from the UK, I know a thing or two about clouds. You see enough clouds, and what do you expect at some point? You expect rain. But these guys were like rain clouds with no rain. Empty promises. Just in case you missed it, Jude will make the same point with another word picture. He says, they're trees in late autumn. They're fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. The early autumn in Palestine would be more than enough time for fruit to be on trees. But once again, you walk up to them expecting there to be fruit, and there's nothing. The promise is there, but to fulfill is lacking. <laughs> He goes on, he says they are, verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. This is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 57 verse 20. I'll read it to you. It says, but the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea because it cannot be still and its water churns up mire and muck. These ones are relentless in their pursuit of evil and like crashing waves produce foam their evil deeds produce more even more shameful deeds the more they engage in them as one commentator put it like restless waves of the sea the false teachers leave filthy scum and debris in their wake show me a false teacher and give me enough time. You'll find a scandal at some point. I, I used to be surprised when you'd hear these sordid scandals involving televangelists. I used to be. I'm not anymore. Some would say, that's not good. You've become desensitized. Not because I've become desensitized. But the more I read my Bible, the more it makes sense. Scandal follows these people. Why? Because... When you start believing that, well, I'm here to serve me, well, guess what? You're going to start abusing people, abusing things. Because, again, you're not trying to serve the body. You're trying to serve yourself. No wonder scandal follows these. It's funny. You look at every, look at the major cults. Some form of scandal involved. 
whether it's Charles Taze Russell of Jehovah's Witnesses who actually was embroiled in a scam involving a so-called miracle wheat that he sold. JWs won't tell you about that because actually most of them don't know it. Their organization does a good job of whitewashing its history. Or Joseph Smith, who had all kinds of accusations that followed him around in his lifetime. You'll hear, by the way, Mormons will talk about Joseph Smith was a martyr. No, he wasn't. He died in a gunfight trying to break out of jail. Timothy Ventures don't go off the hook. Ellen G. White has had accusations of plagiarism follow her for her basically the entirety of her, well, being known in religious circles. Why do you find scandal everywhere you find false teaching? Simple. Because people are what people think. You believe error and you're going to walk in error. Come back to our text. Jude finally says that they are wandering stars. Interesting, the word that's used for stars here is also used for planets. And that kind of fits with the understanding of the day as to how the world worked. Planets were considered to be unreliable because they, unlike us who actually understand that planets have fixed orbits, they believed that planets could wander off course. They were a picture of unreliability. These false teachers can't serve the body because they're too into themselves to be trusted. You see, false teaching is unashamedly self-centered. You see, the true ministry of the word in the power of the spirit is never, never, never about the man. And before we get too excited in our orthodox Bible preaching circles... Even we can run afoul of this. I'm really gifted. I went to the best schools. I have a world-class education in the Bible. You see, it's never about a person and their gift, even if it's a God-given one. Jesus point, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. Why? So that God may be glorified in Jesus Christ and everything? I'll, let me, allow me to be an equal opportunity offender for a moment and talk to people in my own circle. People who share my belief in the word of God and the doctrines of grace and in ex expositional preaching and in good, sound Bible doctrine. We, we can fall foul of this because if you have a belief that is self-centered, it's all about me and my gifting and my ability. You can be just as bad as this. Even someone who preaches truth can veer off the road if they have a serving problem. Ain't no superstars in the kingdom of God, just servants. And what's the end result for these ones, these wandering stars, these unreliable ones? For whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. That language, if it sounds familiar, it's because a similar phrase was used for the angels. Remember that? Verse 7, verse 6, excuse me. God has kept the angels in deep darkness for the judgment of the great day. Interesting, the word that's translated reserved here is the same word for kept. I, I don't think Jude is using the word by accident. Just like those angels right now are, are kept 
in darkness. These false teachers are going exactly where they are. So these false teachers have an authority problem. They refuse to be under anyone. And yet they want to be over everyone. They have a service problem. They want to be served rather than serve. Thirdly, apostates have a destiny problem. Apostates have a destiny problem. Um, should be up on the screen there. Apostates have a destiny problem, verses 14 and 15. Apostates have a destiny problem. By that I mean, they think that they are exalted ones, but divine judgment is bringing them down. They think that they are exalted ones, but divine judgment is bringing them down. That's verses 14 and 15. And note that he says that Enoch says in this illustration that the Lord ten thousands of I'm quoting from the King James Version, I'm remembering, but tens of thousands of his holy ones, that he will judge the ungodly for their acts and their harsh things said against God. Remember that melodic line I told you to keep paying attention to that keeps coming up in the past. Here it is again. Apostasy is real. But divine judgment is more real. False preachers may assault the church, but do not get to win. Here's that theme again. Again. Even the literature these folks more than likely quoted testifies of the fact that their destiny was not promising. They thought themselves to be higher than the angels. They slandered them. But in all honesty, they were going to be brought down by God. Oh, and the very holy ones, the very angels that they slandered. Not a long point. Don't plan on dwelling here long. But before I, before I move on, do, do you notice the repetition of a word there in verse 15, four times? The word ungodly. It's the same word that's used in verse 4 to describe these people. Jesus says that they are ungodly. You see, destiny is assured because they were up against God Almighty himself. They have an authority problem. They want to be over everyone, but under no one. They have a service problem. They want to be served rather than to serve. They have a destiny problem. They want to be exalted ones, but divine judgment is bringing them down. One more and I'm done. Problem number four. The apostates have a dishonesty problem. They have a dishonesty problem. Hopefully should be up on screen. A dishonesty problem. By that I mean, they say and do one thing, but they want something else. You can call this an inconsistency problem if you wanted. The problem with false professors of faith is that they have a divided tongue. Because after all, they're looking to profit of people, off of people, excuse me. Even if their words don't always suggest that. To illustrate that, Jude gives us one final couplet in this little crash course in apostasy. Verse 16, he says that these people are, you see it there in the text? Grumblers. Discontented grumblers. Literally, they are grumblers and discontents. Grumbling, 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 grumbling. That's, that's not a word that we use very often, is it? 
It's the idea of a low-pitched mumbling about something you can't get. Even the Greek word here uh, carries the idea of, it's literally the word, it has the word gong in it. That kind of low guttural feeling, that low guttural mumbling because I can't have some, you've seen it. Those of you who have kids, I was the oldest of kids, I felt like a third parent sometimes. Um, Douglas, that's my English name. Douglas, can I have this? No. Why? Mom said no. And I'm not getting in trouble for you. No. <laughs> it's, that's, that's the idea here. And I don't think it's by accident that Jude picks up on this. This language of discontented grumblers. Remember last message? Apostasy starts with unbelief. What was the manifestation of unbelief? With the wilderness generation. They were grumblers and complainers. In fact, just on the verge of going into the land, they start mumbling and complaining, God said it's here to kill us. <laughs> but what's interesting here is, these ones are discontented grumblers. Unlike the wilderness generation who are grumbling because they believe they couldn't have this, these ones complained because they wanted more than they could have. That author I quoted, Dr. John Benson, in his book, Slandering the Angel, says there's these men, when they have found fault, like to whisper about it to others and grumble. They speak not to God in prayer, but to fellow Christians in murmuring. They stir up discontent, end quote. Rather than help God's work, these ones would harm it. And why would they do this? They're discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Not only are they the type to rustle up discontents rather than help. Jude goes on to say, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. They are boastful. We've all encountered this at some point in our lives. There's always that one person we know. There's always at least one. Who's always got a story with them as the hero. Like, they've always got a story. Oh, there was this one time I did this. There was this one time that I heard about this. Have I told you about this one time I was hanging out with so-and-so person? Um, those of you who are Harry Potter fans, you'll remember this. Um, the character Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, if you haven't read the Harry Potter stories, there's a teacher who comes to Hogwarts, Gilderoy Lockhart, and he's constantly talking about himself. He talks about himself in the third person. It's very obnoxious. And he's always talking about this book he's written. This book written by me, Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> always self-confident. I'll fight the urge to go into my rant about how our society's obsession with self-confidence comes from the devil himself. I'll save that for another sermon. As Dr. Benson put it, boasting is always a sign of a false teacher. When Paul confronted such men in his second letter to the Corinthians, the only things he would mention of himself were not his successes, but his weaknesses and sufferings. We follow a crucified Lord who was never a big success in this world's terms. But not these guys. No, no, no. These guys are boastful. Always got a story with them as the hero. Their, their mouths utter arrogant words. 
over-exalted the literal idea of the word. Not only are they boastful, which is disgusting enough, they do this to draw people after them. Jude says that they boast, flattering people for their own advantage. It's interesting, the word that's flattering here, it's Jude. This is why I think that Jude was writing to Jewish Christians, because it's a very Hebrew-influenced book. And one of the ways that it comes out is the use of this word, flattering. The word literally here is marveling at the face of. Marveling at the face of is the idea of partiality when it's used in the Old Testament. Is the idea of, as we would say in the English language, flattering to deceive? I'm going to say really nice elevated things about you so that you listen to me. It's like Thomas Brooks mentions in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. They do the same thing that the devil does. They show you the bait, which is the flattery, but they hide the hook, which is their desire for them, for you to bless them. What can I say to keep them on side? How can I maneuver this conversation to win people over? How can I work this angle to my advantage? Always about number one. And that's the portrait of the apostates that Jude paints for us. I mean, it sounds pretty discouraging after all. Like, man, is this what we're up against? <laughs> well... Remember I told you, there's a melodic line in the book of Jude. Apostasy is real. Very real. And in fact, burying our heads in the sand won't do anything to deal with it. But divine judgment is more real than that. False preachers may assault the church. They may use a battery of methods to do it. But I wouldn't be too worried about it because they do not get to win. What's our response to be? I don't want to leave this on a sour note. Well, our response is to contend for the faith. But then that begs a question, doesn't it? Begs a question. What does it look like to contend for the faith? I mean, what does it look like to engage for the truth's sake? Actually, it doesn't look anything like what you think it would. In fact, it's so ordinary, it might seem boring. But I'm not going to go there for now. I'm going to save that for the next message in Jude in a few weeks. So we'll pick it up in verses 17 to 23 in our next study. And from there, the mood's going to change because who he's speaking to is going to change. But more on that next time. Join with me in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have not left us to the wiles of the devil. You've not left us to the mercy of these interlopers, these deceivers, these apostates. No, yes, false teaching may assault your church, but they do not get to win. And that's our confidence. That's our hope. And Father, we don't live our entire lives just in reaction to these things. Help us, to, as we'll see in future weeks. You've called us to be your people. 
that there are certain priorities that should be true of us. Father, we thank you that you love your church so much that you will not allow false teaching and arrogant ones and self-centered ones to besiege the church. But ultimately, you will deal with them and your people will rise victorious. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of Jesus Christ and his finished work in which we stand. Help us then that we would always be those who remember that we are a victorious people in this contending for the faith. We ask you to in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.